Well, good morning, Cross United. I'm so glad you've joined us this morning. We're going to be talking this morning about what we do when the world is falling apart. You, uh, you know, we're going to take a break from our study in the Gospel of John because I just I just sense that 2020 uh, continues to press down on us, doesn't it? It's been a year, hasn't it? Um, I see memes and jokes online all the time about it. One of, one of my favorites is, I can't believe we stayed up and yelled Happy New Year for this. And you see stuff all the time about how, you know, it's been a long decade last month and those sorts of things. Uh, we already knew this was going to be a difficult and contentious season with the, the election approaching. But, but you add to that this global pandemic and the, the fears and concerns financially, health-wise, all of those things that have pressed down upon us, the, the way that's sort of added to our partisan divides and, and the, the animosity that different sides feel for one another. And then you have racial injustice erupting uh, and, and surfacing the, the tensions that have been in our nation for centuries because of the original sin of racism and slavery and and this original sin is never really healed, and so it's festered and infected, and now it's brought about all these protests and even riots and violence. And then you have the fires in California. My uh, childhood home was in the evacuation zone back in Northern California, and my family's all surrounded. They're okay, um, but but it's it's. You see that. Then you see, you know, we had Hurricane Isaias that, that was a narrow miss for us here in South Florida. And then Hurricane Laura that battered the Gulf Coast. And, and it just seems like it's one thing after another. People are losing friends over political tensions. There is just so much going on. It's been a season for sure. It's been a year for sure. And that's not even to mention, that's just our own little world, let alone the strain on the majority of the world. And many are in poverty and many are dying from lack of food and water and, and access to medical care. What do we do in seasons like this? What do we do? What in the world's going on? You know, some people I've seen have said, this is the judgment of God upon the world. And, and that could be the case. Um, but we don't know for sure. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that there are some things that belong to the secret providence and will of God. And he, he doesn't tell us everything all the time. Um, some have said that this is the groaning of creation as as creation is is aging and like a, like a person who's aging is is groaning as as things are starting not to work as well as they used to. Um, we could speculate all day about why this is happening. But I think it's more effective and more fruitful to, to ask, how should we respond? So we're going to pause this morning in the book of John, and we're going to talk for a few minutes about how to respond when it seems like the world is falling apart. How do we respond when it seems like the world is falling apart? And I want to offer to you from 1 Corinthians 13, that famous chapter on love, a threefold pattern. Three ways to respond when the world is falling apart. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. More than ever in this season, we need Christians who live out these virtues in a broken world. We need churches that are churches that live out these virtues. We need to be people who respond in faith, who respond in hope, and respond in love. So let's look at these three 
here. First, faith. How do we respond in faith? Well, we have to believe and trust God first and foremost. And we've been studying the book of John, and all throughout the book of John, we see that faith or believing in Christ is key to what it means to be a believer. We spent, we spent a lot of time talking about that because it's a major theme in the book of John. This is not just a generic God or a generic slogan like, in God we trust, on the back of our currency. This is a personal trust in a triune God, the triune God, the Father who sent the Son and the power of the Spirit to become a human being, to live a sinless life, to do miracles and and bring in the kingdom of God, to offer his life as a sacrifice for sin on the cross, to be buried and raised from the dead so that anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in him will be forgiven of their sin and given eternal life. We need to trust God in the gospel for our salvation, and we also need to trust God moment by moment for the daily things in our lives and for the big and for the small. We need to trust him as the ultimate source of our security. We need to trust him to the point that we feel deep down that we have no one to impress. We have nothing to prove to anyone and eternally we have nothing to lose. We need to believe God. But I also think we need to believe our neighbor. I think we need to believe the best about our neighbors. I I think it's so easy for us to become narrow and suspicious, to assume the worst about everyone and everything, to to think that everyone has an ulterior motive or or an agenda. I think think we could see massive transformation if in, in love for our neighbor and in obedience to God's command to love our neighbor, we started to think, you know what? I'm going to believe the best until proven otherwise. Maybe they're doing something I disagree with, but they're made in God's image. They're a fellow bearer of the image of the triune God like I am. And so I'm going to start from a place of faith. Even more, we need to believe the best about our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to believe the best about those who are approaching this season differently than we are. Maybe someone's being a little less cautious than we would be in terms of the shutdown and the the COVID pandemic. Maybe someone's being a lot more cautious than we would be. We need to believe the best and assume the best. And maybe there's a reason we don't know for why they're doing what they're doing and not just assume that they're reckless or fearful. I see too many Christians believing wrong things. They're getting caught up in conspiracy theories. They're believing Facebook posts and YouTube videos over the testimony of the gospel and their brothers and sisters in Christ who are in their actual lives. They're falling prey to these things, these conspiracy theories. And and too many Christians are, are, are believing the lie that the church's fate rises and falls on the results of the November 3rd election. Too many Christians are believing that the fate of our lives rises and falls on November 3rd's election. And it's just not true. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he didn't add a caveat unless blank wins on November 3rd, 2020. 
No, that's we need to spend less time letting the world disciple us. We need to spend less time on YouTube and social media, watching cable news or Netflix or Hulu. We need to get into the Word. You need to be in the Word. You need to be in the Word, and you need to be in the Word in community. I want to encourage you to lean in to the Word and the Word in community. We need to be people of faith who believe the, believe God, believe the best about our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who believe the right things. Second, we need to be people of hope. You know, we need hope to survive. God made us with this incredible ability to withstand pain and suffering. But the moment hope is gone, that that our our, our tolerance for suffering dissolves because we cannot survive without hope. As Christians, we have both an objective hope and a subjective hope. The objective hope is the external objective reality of what God has given to us and promised to us in the gospel. The hope that Jesus will come back, that Jesus will make all things new, that one day he will resurrect his own and bring them into everlasting life. We have tremendous objective hope. And we are also people of subjective hope, people who place our hope into the triune God in Christ. We are people who believe that God is for us and that we will attain what we don't see. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is from 2 Chronicles 20.12, where Jehoshaphat says, we don't know what to do as the, the Transjordan coalition is, is allied against the armies of Israel ac- across the Jordan River, and, and, and they're, they're coming at him, and he, and he doesn't know what he's going to do. And in front of all the people, he says, I don't know what to do, Lord, but my eyes are on you. Our eyes are on you. Now, most of the time, we, we say leaders shouldn't let others see them sweat. Don't let them see your uncertainty. But but spiritual leadership is counterintuitive because it says, you know, I'm not sure in myself, but I am sure in the Lord. I don't know what to do, but I do know that we should turn to the Lord in this moment. Well, recently I've, I've been, been um, sensing just a sort of a, a numbness or a haze around the, the life of our church. Not hopeless, not, not in despair, not I mean, maybe maybe the word discouraged would apply, but but just just not quite sure what's ahead. Maybe I can see one or two steps ahead, but I can't see much further than that. I can't see beyond the haze. I see videos from back uh, in my hometown of California where people show videos of all of the smoke from all the fires, and I sort of f- was telling my my church planting coach, who I meet with once a month, his name is John. I was talking to him this week. I said I sort of just feel like I'm in this haze. And it's not that it's not that I don't know the next step, but I can't really see the horizon. I don't really know where's God taking us. What's God doing? Are people who have disconnected going to reconnect? Are what's going to happen? And what John told me was so wise. He said, "It sounds like what you need is hope." And I think he was exactly right. We're called to be people of hope. It's one thing, you know, to be hopeless or in despair, but I think too often we find ourselves, maybe you found yourself where I've often found myself, in sort of this malaise, this this sort of messy middle where you're you're sort of just moving on through life and, and you're not hopeful. You're not hopeless, but you're not hopeful and you feel like you can't see. But then it hit me. Hope, by definition, is 
believing when we cannot see. Look what Romans 8, 24 and 25 says. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. We eagerly wait for it with patience. That This is what Christian hope is. You know, I know. I know you can't see. I know you can't see what's going to happen with the shutdown. I know you can't see what's going to happen with the hurricanes or the fires or the riots or the racial injustice. I know you can't see what's happening with your family and your kids. I know you can't see what's happening with your work or what's going to happen with your finances or what's going to happen with your health. But this, when we can't see, that's exactly when hope comes into play. Because hope is what we do when we can't see. When there is the malaise, when there's the the fog and the smoke of the broken world surrounding us. We are people of hope. And so I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to be the most obnoxiously hopeful person in your family. And the most obnoxiously hopeful person in your network of friends. I think too many of us and too many of you often get caught in a spiral of assumptions that the world's going to end and Jesus, you know, this is the last days and, you know, at any moment the trumpet's going to sound and Jesus is going to come back. And so we're kind of just on, on, you know, maintenance mode or defense or just waiting for that moment. And don't get me wrong, that could happen. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. But Reading church history gives us a little bit of help and instruction because at many points throughout the history of the church, people felt exactly how we feel. They thought Jesus is coming back. Jesus could come back any time in, in AD 430 when, when, the, 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 um, when the Rome fell and, 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 and that eternal city or so it was called that it stood for centuries fell. Many thought, this is it. This is the end. Jesus is, is going to return. The, the world is ending. All throughout the history of the church, people have said that it was the end. There's been plagues and wars and uprisings. And so in the year 2020, maybe this is the end. Maybe Jesus returns tomorrow. And if so, what tremendous hope we have. But it could be that we have another thousand years on this earth. It could be this is just a preliminary contraction in the labor pain of creation. You know, all three of our kids were born. My wife, you know, Laura started going into labor. And sometimes it takes a long time from those contractions to when the baby's born. We're not promised. There's no guarantee that the world ends tomorrow. And there's no guarantee that Jesus doesn't return tomorrow. We must expect, anticipate with hope that he will return in his own perfect timing. I think one of the most profound ways to be a person of hope in the current moment is through the biblical practice of lament. Lament calls us to faithfully bring to God our questions and our cares, our pain and our problems. Earlier in this shutdown season, we studied together the book of Habakkuk. And I love how Habakkuk says this in Habakkuk 1, 2 through 4. How long, O Lord, must I cry for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? 
Why do you force me to look at wrong injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and strife are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective, for justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. You see the two questions Habakkuk asks there? How long and why? How long, O Lord? Why is this happening? When you see all of the brokenness around you, it's good and faithful to cry out to God. How long? Why, Lord? What's going on? To bring your fear and your, your, your doubt and your pain to God in faith. Because you, you only complain, you only complain when there's some glimmer of hope that things can change. Habakkuk faithfully protests and complains and laments before the Lord. And the Lord gives him a vision of the future that was a short-term bad, short-term bad news, but long-term glorious redemption. Lament in hope. We need to be people of faith. We need to be people of hope. And most of all, we need to be people of love. We're called to love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. We're, we're called to, tr- to love God by trusting and believing in God. We're called to love God by hoping in God. We're, tra- we're called to love God by making our life's priority to worship and trust God alone. In my personal Bible reading, I'm reading through Exodus currently and read just this morning through Exodus 20, where where it's the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. You shall not make any god. You know, too often we're in love with the things that that someone made. Either we made, like maybe a child, or someone else made, like like a car or a house or a some some other sort of network of relationship or or you know the 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 what we call the killer bees birthday parties ball games brunches and and boats we we love the good life but the the scripture calls us to love the lord our god with all our heart soul mind and strength to give him our full primary allegiance and to love everything for his sake we need to love god we also need to love one another Now more than ever, we need to love one another, church. We need to lean into the community that God has put around us. And I know it's hard, and I know that this is a strange season, and it's hard with kids, and... But, but I want to encourage you to lean into the community of your local church. If you consider Cross United your church home, I want to encourage you to engage with the opportunities that we have as a church for you to connect. Right now, we're doing Zoom calls on Thursdays. We're doing a drive-in on Sundays. We're not sure when we're going to be able to change to a different rhythm, but as soon as we can, we will. I want to encourage you to lean into those opportunities. Barna... Um, is a is a research firm, and uh, and they did a study that said that in this shutdown season, one third of Christians completely disconnected from their church, and from any church. One third of Christians attended various church events online sporadically, and one third of Christians have been pretty consistent with their own local church. And I have seen in our church that those numbers map very closely onto what we have seen. 
One third of you are pretty much consistently connecting. One third are sporadically connecting. And one third are completely disconnected. And my heart is burdened for you. My heart is burdened for you. Because you call a child born into the human family, but not into a nuclear family, an orphan. And a Christian who's disconnected from the local family of Christ, the local church, is living like a spiritual orphan. And I know it's not all that we want it to be maybe in this season with online and driving and all that, but I want to encourage you to connect with your church family. I want to encourage you to lean into the community God has given you. My heart is so heavy for you, Cross United. In 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 29, Paul lists all of his suffering for the gospel. Look what he says. Five times I received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day on the open sea. Frequent dangers, journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toils and hardships, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold without clothing. All of this physical suffering for the gospel, tremendous suffering for the sake of Christ. But look at how he concludes what plagued him and hurt him more than anything. What weighed on him more than anything? Look at verses 28 and 29. Not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? Paul said, in the midst of being beaten and stoned and shipwrecked, cold and hungry, what really hurts me is the fact that I love the churches so much that when they're hurting, I'm hurting. When they're wandering, I'm suffering. When they're sinning, I'm hurting. And I'm longing for better for them. Church, I love you. And you are constantly on my heart and in my prayers. I miss you. I miss, I miss the connection that we have. I miss... I miss that the, the the rhythms of our life as a community. And if you've if you've disconnected, I miss you tremendously. And it's not the same without you. We miss you and we love you. We need to love God and we need to love one another. We need to love our neighbors. Last weekend we served at um with a number of other churches and organizations to to distribute personal household items to those in need, and we distributed, I think, something like 48,000 pounds of goods to hundreds and hundreds of families. And and my daughter, Adeline, afterward just was like, just glowing and said, it feels so good to serve. We need to be serving our neighbors in a time of racial tension. We need to love one another and to love our neighbors Love believes all things, bears all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says. We need to believe and bear with our brothers and sisters in Christ. In this season of racial tension, 
I think one of the biggest things white Christians can do to love their minority brothers and sisters is to love them enough to believe them. Because I have minority brothers and sisters, black brothers and sisters. They've told me their experience in our society, and it is much different than what I've experienced. And what I could say is, well, that's silly. That's not what I experienced. That's not what I think. That's not what I've heard. Or I could say, you know what? You're my brother and or my sister in Christ, and I believe you. I believe you, even though I don't understand it, even though I haven't experienced it. I love you, and so I believe you. Our minority brothers and sisters, one of the best things you can do for your white brothers and sisters in Christ is to bear with us in the midst of this. We don't always understand what you're going through. And those things obviously go both ways. We all need to bear with and believe with and endure with and hope with one another in all things. We need to love one another enough to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. We need to love one another. We need to love our neighbors. And we also need to love our enemies. Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I see a lot of animosity from Christians toward those who are perceived to be their enemies. Often this happens on social media over politics. And I know people who have lost friendships, years-long friendships, because of political animosity. And I want to just ask this question, whatever happened to love? We become so concerned with protecting our freedom that we've forgotten to love. Galatians 5, 13 through 15 says, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. Let's lean into love. Let's love our family. Let's love our friends. Let's love our church. Let's love them when they're great, and let's love them when they irritate. Let's love them when we're glad for them, and let's love them when we feel sick of them. Let's love them when it's convenient, and let's love them when it's not. We're not called to convenience relationships. We're called to covenant relationships. We're called to love one another. We talk in the Bible a lot. There's a, there's a lot in the Bible about covenant. In our culture, the covenant is not really a major part of our society. And really the main way we see covenant is through the covenant of marriage. And two people stand there before God and before a group of people and before a minister and and they are brought into covenant with one another, and they, they exchange rings as a binding symbol of their covenant. And there, there's no tearing apart that covenant love. We're called to love one another, church, with a love that is much more like covenant than convenient, that is much more like marriage than a gym membership. We're called to love our neighbors, and we're called to love God. Church, I just wonder what could happen if we leaned into these three values in this season. If we became known 
as people of overwhelmingly prevailing faith, of obnoxious hope, and of undefeated, unconditional love. Imagine what God could do. Imagine what he could do in our church. Imagine what he could do in your life. Imagine what he could do in your family. Imagine what he could do in our neighborhoods and our nation if as a church we became known as people of faith, hope, and love.